Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Uh, my name is Michael Willis. I'm one of the uh, fellows um, here at the Middle East Centre, and it's pleased to introduce you to this evening's, this week's Friday seminar series. It's actually the last that we're doing this term in Hillary term, and in fact. It's probably the last formally of the academic year. Those of you who are familiar with the Friday seminar series here at Middle East Centre, we run them on uh, Michaelmas and Hillary term, not so much in Trinity term because of exams, but we still have plenty of events, particularly in the early part of term, so do please continue to look on the website and other events. And, of course, we have our big uh, set piece um, George Antonius annual lecture, I think in eighth week, did you say, Eugene? 20th of June. 20th of June, so you're very welcome to that. But we're very pleased to introduce our speaker for this evening. Tonight, we turn for the first time to the, this year to the Maghreb, specifically for this seminar, uh, Tunisia. And I'm very pleased to welcome our distinguished speaker this evening, Rory McCarthy. Dr. McCarthy is a fellow by examination at Magdalen College here in Oxford. Now, whereas most of us, speaking for myself, certainly struggle to have one career, uh, Rory's had two distinguished careers uh, related to the Middle East. Uh, many of you will be familiar with him and his work uh, from his time as the Middle East correspondent um, at the Guardian newspaper, where he lived and reported from Pakistan, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, and Israel-Palestine. During that time, he wrote and published his first book, uh, "Nobody Told Us We Are Defeated: Stories from a New Iraq." Rory left journalism for academia in 2010, studying for the MPhil in modern Middle Eastern studies here at St Anthony's College, and continuing on to do the DPhil, the doctorate here. Now at Magdalen College, Rory is researching popular protest in the Arab world, particularly North Africa. Now, those of you aware of the news, this is a very topical subject, particularly in Algeria at the moment. So exciting times. Those of you may have seen even bigger demonstrations today than in the previous two weeks. It's a very exciting period. Tonight, though, Rory will be speaking about his research that he did for his doctorate, which I'm delighted to say has now been published as a book by Cambridge University Press, entitled "Inside Tunisia's Al Nahda: Between Politics and Preaching." The book, as, it, as its title indicates, is a study of the main Islamist movement in Tunisia, Al Nahda. As I'm sure you're all aware, Al Nahda played a, a central role in the aftermath of the popular uprisings and revolutions in Tunisia in 2011. Taking a leading role uh, where it has remained in government until now, Rory's book is a study of a movement. It looks at its origins, um, its evolution, and its rise. Now, as you will hear, and I don't want to steal Rory's thunder too much from what he's want to say. Rory charts the story of this movement through the lens of the experience of, of the movement in Tunisia's third largest city of Sousse, where he lived for a year, conducting interviews with past and present members, gradually pe- piecing together. The history of Anatolia in the city through this experience of individuals. Now, I have I've been lucky enough to have read this book, and I really can't recommend it highly enough. It is an outstanding book. Not only is it really one of the very best things I've read on both Tunisia and Islamism, but its careful, beautifully written portrayal of a movement and its members brings to life and thus explains uh, with texture and colour these experiences. And I, I particularly recommend the chapter where Rory looks at the repression of a movement and the experience in, in jail, which is an extraordinary uh, piece of research and piece of writing. So I thoroughly recommend. It. The book is on sale tonight. I'm pleased to say for the bargain price of seventeen pounds, and you can you'll be here to sign afterwards, won't you, Rory? It is really I really can't recommend this enough. This is a wonderful book. I could go on, but I, I won't and I shouldn't because you haven't really here come here to hear me speak. You've here come here to speak, Rory. So please, Rory McCarthy. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along, especially on this the last night of term. I really appreciate that. So, as Michael said, I, I first had the idea for the research project that became the doctorate that became this book when I took Michael's course on the MPhil. That was eight years ago. It was exactly eight years ago. Hillary term, 2011. It was at a time when the Regimes in Tunisia and then in Egypt were collapsing at the beginning of the wave of the Arab uprisings. Michael has been an endlessly Generous guide and a great advocate for my work ever since, and I'm really grateful to you. Thank you very much, and for plugging my book so nobly. And for any of you who are looking for a doctoral supervisor, Michael has been a really endlessly supportive guide. I would really recommend him. Okay, let's talk about Anatta. I want to start with a scene. So this is May 2016. This is the 10th Congress of the Anatta Movement held in Hammamet, which is a beautiful beach resort 
in Tunisia. Hundreds of members of the movement have gathered to discuss how they've managed in the five years since the fall of the authoritarian regime, but they're also there to chart a new strategy for the future. And this is the product of months of workshops and discussions in local NATO offices across the country. And at this Congress, the members of the movement, they call themselves Nahtawis, vote to transform a NATO into a political party that would, for the first time, formally separate itself from religious, social and cultural activism. Rashid Khanoushi, the founder leader of the movement, tells the Congress that this is a process called functional specialization. He says it's the latest stage in the evolution of Anatta. And he tells a French newspaper, we're leaving political Islam to enter into Muslim democracy. We are Muslim Democrats who no longer call for political Islam. This is what I want to talk about. How do we explain the transformation of an Islamist project? Because, because this is a movement that really has changed. It began as a preaching circle in the 1970s, drawing on ideas borrowed from the Brotherhood in Egypt, borrowing also from the Dawa practices of the Tablighi Jamaat, the South Asian preaching movement. It announced its first political ambitions at a press conference in June 1981, when Khanoushi and his colleagues proposed an audacious new project based on what they called a comprehensive conception of Islam. This is what you hear in this period from lots of Islamist movements, this idea of being comprehensive, of combining the political and the religious in one vision. The movement was heavily repressed in the 80s. In the early 1990s, it was almost completely wiped out, almost completely disappeared in Tunisia. 20 years later, after the fall of the regime in January 2011, the movement is legalised. It wins the first elections in October 2011. And then by 2016, the movement is reinventing itself through what it calls a functional specialisation, where its focus is now on political work separate from all of the preaching work of the past. This is really a significant reduction, I think, of its once transcendent ambition. And the way that Renouchi presents this apparently straightforward trajectory, or evolution is what he calls it, from religious movement to opposition force to party of government, is not the whole story. I want to argue that the decision to specialise as a political party in 2016 was the product of a long internal debate driven by growing disquiet among many Nahdawis about the identity of their movement after decades of repression and political exclusion. And so in 2016, when the movement says this, it's admitting in public, I think, that it can no longer fuse together what it calls political work with preaching work in one comprehensive vision. So I want to ask what's happened to that first comprehensive vision. Why is there such an internal disagreement about the true character of what this movement represents? Who really speaks for the movement? What did it mean to be an Islamist movement in an emerging democracy? And what can this all tell us about the challenges of Islamism more broadly in the region? And I want to suggest that Anatta is not an exceptional case that has no bearing on Islamists elsewhere, just as I think that the case of Tunisia is not the Arab anomaly that it's sometimes presented as. I think there are Islamist movements across the region tackling quite similar questions. How to articulate an Islamist vision in the new political context after 2011? How to define and to implement the Sharia? How to balance the tension between party and movement? And when we hear Renouchi talking about Anatta as a movement of Muslim Democrats, that sounds exceptional. But actually, there's a real pattern of self-reinvention across the region. The PJD, the Party of Justice and Development in Morocco, now calls itself a party with an Islamic reference. The Freedom and Justice Party, the short-lived party set up by the Brotherhood in Egypt, called itself a civil party with an Islamic reference. That's exactly what Anatta was calling itself in 2011, before it got to this stage. And of course, the AKP in Turkey calls itself a party of conservative Democrats. So I suggest that the case of Inata actually has quite a lot to offer to help us think about what's happening to these Islamist movements and whether and how they might be moving beyond the Islamism of the past. Before I tackle these questions, I want to think a little bit about how we approach the study of Islamism. Because I feel that we are too fascinated by leaders and by ideologues, and we sometimes present them as if their thoughts and ambitions embody entire monolithic movements. 
But this doesn't allow for the possibility that Islamist organisations are much more fragmented than they appear. So we tend to interview Islamist leaders, that's Renoushi in the middle and Abdul Fattah Moro, one of the co-founders standing next to him. We tend to interview people like this, we read their statements, we study their public performances, but we pay much less attention to how their words are received and understood by their supporters and how those perceptions might change over time. And I think this is particularly pronounced in the case of Inahda because of the enduring and charismatic role of Rashid Ghanoushi, the movement's founder. And so it means that we tend to think of Inahda in the way that he wants to present it, as if it's a unified movement pursuing primarily a political project that's aimed at state power. But we don't ask, how did this come to be the priority? Was the path to politicisation seamless? And do ordinary members of the movement see it in the same way as their leaders? And I think that if we overlook these internal dynamics, we're going to miss a lot about the transmission of ideas from the leadership to the grassroots and the contest and negotiation over these ideas. I want to take an alternative approach. I look at the lived experience of Islamist activism. So I'm interested in how individuals came to the movement, what meanings they gave to their actions, and how and why those meanings might have changed over time. I want to take seriously the experiences of non-elite members of the movement by looking at how Islamist activism is operating off stage, beyond the most visible and formal politics of movements and their leaders. So I'm drawing on the idea that meaning-making is constitutive in social movements. And if we, if we take this approach, we soon see that there are competing narratives of meaning in the movement and that competition over meaning is dynamic and productive. It produces strategic and intellectual adaptations. And I think this helps to reorientate the way we think about Islamists. I'm not trying to say that the informal activities of ordinary men and women are somehow more important than the actions of their leaders. I am trying to say that there is much to learn, I think, from changing our perspective to study the solidarities that emerge from informal, value-centred, grassroots political work and to map how those solidarities change over time. So this book is a political ethnography of Inahta based on a year of fieldwork in Sousse, which is Tunisia's third largest city. It's based in the wealthy coastal district of the Sahel, marked in green there, a city of about 200,000 people. I started my research here in late 2013. I knew one person in Sousse who was a Nahdawi. He was a former political prisoner. He found me somewhere to live. He introduced me to his friends. They introduced me to others. This is a, I mean, you could call it a snowball technique. It's a little bit more haphazard than that. But I ended up meeting a lot of ordinary members of the movement and many of those who held positions in the 16 local bureau in the governorate. Spent my time hanging out in Nafta offices, going to rallies and celebrations, meetings, family weddings. Why Sousse? If you know anything about Tunisia, it's actually quite an odd place to start because Sousse is a city that's produced much of the secular and business elite in Tunisia since independence. Ben Ali came from Hammam Sousse, which is one of the districts of Sousse. Many of his ministers have come from Sousse. But the city's also long been a site of Islamist support. So there were preaching circles at the Great Mosque in Sousse from the early 1970s. And in fact, Renouchi and some of his colleagues were arrested there in 1973 and briefly held by the police. But what really made me think of the city was when I found a, in a newspaper archive in Tunis a breakdown of the election results from 1989. In the first election, this is the first election under Ben Ali, shortly after his coup. It was the first time the Islamists were allowed to run, although this was as independents, not, not under the name of Inahda. And in Sousse, they won 27% of the vote. That's in a rigged election in an authoritarian system. So I think that's a pretty remarkable result. And they did similarly well in other big urban areas, Tunis, Benarus, Bidzer. They didn't win any seats in parliaments. That's what I mean by an authoritarian system. The electoral system was designed to prevent any challenge to the RCD, the ruling party. But the point is that the depth of their urban presence was suddenly apparent. And I wanted to study where that urban presence came from and what happened to it. So let's go back to the question I asked at the beginning. How do we explain transformation of an Islamist project? And I argue that even though, as I said at the beginning, the Islamists of Inahta presented the relationship between political and religious ambitions in their movement as interdependent, as comprehensive, as cohesive, in fact this relationship has been conflictual and is now effectively irreconcilable. I think when we look at the way Inahta is behaving after 2011, we tend to think of their strategic and intellectual dilemmas as something new. 
right? This is understandable because there's been an enormous opening of political opportunities, of course, because of the uprising. And so there are many more opportunities and challenges for Ennahda, indeed for all political parties. But if we spend too much time thinking about what's novel in the situation, we overlook a longer history of internal debate within the movement. And I want to suggest that the tension between the political and the religious ambitions in the movement is historic. It's been there practically from the start. We don't talk about this very much. Why do we miss it? I think because scholarly attention has been focused on the visible formal contest between the movement and the regime and that's the effect of focusing on leaders and ideologues but it's not the only arena of struggle and we find that these movements are not just obsessed with the state they engage in politics much more widely and that's particularly because of the intrusive nature of the modern nation state especially i think in the middle east which means that even religious or social or cultural activism becomes a political act. Another problem is that sometimes we explain Islamist mobilisation through economic or structural grievances. This is the idea that structural strains are what lead to a sort of quest for self-identity that finds its realisation in an Islamist movement. It's not a very satisfactory argument, but it doesn't explain why at a moment of crisis some people might become Islamists, others might become leftists. It doesn't explain why they might continue their activism beyond the moment of crisis. But what's interesting is that it treats religion as if it depends on grievances, as if it's instrumental rather than an independent variable in its own right, as if it's just a vocabulary that somehow expresses people's grievances. And it means we, I think, tend to downplay the significance of faith and belief and the role that they might play in creating identities and values and practices. So in Tunisia, for example, there's one account of Anatta which describes the movement as reaching the end of the 1980s and being, quote, no longer religious in any strict sense of the term. But I think that if we take seriously local offstage activism, you see a different picture, you see a different range of mobilisations. And so what I'm interested in is how an Islamist movement draws on a supply of religious resources which might offer it shared identities, motivations, legitimacy, but also an ethic of social criticism and, most importantly, an ethic of action. Let's look at Ennahda. In June 1981, this is the first press conference of the Islamic Tendency Movement, the MTI. This is the forerunner of Ennahda. That's Hanushi, a rather younger-looking Hanushi in the middle. At this stage, the movement is making its first formal political act. It's announcing its intention to enter political life by the creation of the MTI, the forerunner of Ennahda. Things it stands for are the re- a rejection of the one-party state. It's arguing for pluralist political competition. It does have an ambition to establish an Islamic state, although this is really more aspirational than, than it's ever detailed. And the movement conceives of itself in deference to a state-centred political system. So they talk about democratic goals. They talk about inclusion in the political process. That's their goal. Ghanoushi later said at this moment, we drank the cup of democracy in one gulp back in the 1980s, while other Islamists have taken it sip by sip. But formal political work is not the only goal at this stage. In fact, in 1981, it's not even the primary goal. If you read their texts, they say that the primary goal is cultural and social and intellectual before it's political. And when the MTI emerged in public at this moment, there were sharp internal debates inside the movement. Some said they should seek legal recognition as a party, as this this group did. But others said that they wanted to remain as a socio-cultural movement, and it was only by a close vote that those in favour of legal authorisation won out. So conceiving of the MTI as just a political party tends to occlude these differences. It obscures the fact that it was both party and social movement at the same time. It aspired to compete in elections as part of the process and to forge a dissident subculture built around identity and morality and dawah, literally the, the call to Islam. And if you look at the local level in the 70s and 80s, you see a whole range of previously overlooked activism, especially on university campuses and especially in discrete community-building projects. And the other point about this press conference is that within a few weeks, the police begin arresting MTI leaders. And in fact, the senior leadership is jailed from 1981 to 1984. It's jailed again in 1987 and released later that year. It's jailed again in 1990 and and or forced into exile, and that's effectively the end of the political side of the movement for 20 years. So that suggests that that a focus on formal state-level political interactions is only ever going to give you a limited insight. The arrests removed the first generation of leaders at the national level and at the regional level, and that's when younger student leaders 
stepped in to replace them. The movement's preachers were forced out of mosques in Sousse, and now they had to find new spaces for mobilization. The first new space that they found was at the universities, and there was still quite a lot of freedom to act politically in the universities. The universities were expanding rapidly in Tunisia. New campuses were established in Sousse for the first time in the late 70s and the early 80s. Medicine came first, and then law. And the Islamists soon dominated these two faculties. So this slide shows where Islamists in Sousse are most active. So we're talking about late 70s, early 1980s. There are, there are sort of four mosques around the old city. So that's the sea on the right-hand side. Four mosques around the old city, then the Faculty of Medicine, the Faculty of Law, and two schools, the Lycée des Garçons, Lycée Technique, a little bit also in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities. These are their sources of, their spaces of mobilisation. The student part of the movement becomes important, but what's interesting is that student movement was even more divided than the rest of the MTI about this decision to push for legal authorization as a party. And the students felt that legalisation was a way of recognising the regime of Habib Bourguiba, the president of Tunisia, who they very much opposed the state. So the students set their own Islamist student union and they were really pushing for a formal break with the regime. At these university campuses they debated with the left, they fought physically with leftist students as well. They organised demonstrations and public meetings. They were campaigning to extend student rights to establish prayer rooms in the university. The second new space was the more secretive grassroots work in society. And this is where you had small cells of the most loyal members of the movement. They were set up across the city. They were about debating political challenges, but they were their most intense focus was on building a discrete community based on pillars of identity, morality, faith. And these community practices are what defines the MTI at the local level. They're also what go on to provide resilience during the two decades of repression under Ben Ali. So the the social group we're talking about are largely lower middle class, often well-educated students, usually the first in their families to attend university. They became doctors and lawyers and engineers and bureaucrats and especially school teachers. And they developed a community of belonging based on daily practices, based on religious study, shared social activities, I mean sports as part of that, but also mutual practical and financial and emotional support. This I think is what Asif Bayat describes as a, an imagined solidarity. It's a group of political actors who are together imagining and constructing a set of common interests and shared values. So they played sports, they built houses for each other, they prayed together and they married each other and the most prominent Islamists in Sousse are all linked by marriage. And in the marriages they introduced new traditions. So new musical groups singing religiously inspired songs, friends contributing to the cost of the wedding. They avoid alcohol, they avoid gender mixing. These are all new symbolic practices, right? They're trying to separate themselves from the rest of the population by their behaviour. They're trying to, trying to challenge established norms in the public sphere. And of course this is very similar to what Islamists elsewhere in the region were doing. But I think it's surprisingly overlooked in studies of Inahta, which has always been seen as rather unusual and somehow more focused on formal political work. There's a lot of polit political activism taking place well beyond the leadership's negotiation with the regime and its efforts to enter the political process. And I think this plasticity in the movement is very useful. It allows it to maximise its mobilising potential to, to attract as wide a range of supporters as possible, people with different priorities people with different understandings who all coexist in one organisation. The problem is that under pressure, the movement begins to fragment. So there's a crackdown against the movement in the late 1980s. Uh, about 10,000 Islamists are jailed for significant times. Several hundred go into exile abroad, and the movement effectively ceases to exist as a political force in Tunisia. After the coup... In 87, uh, Ben Ali had made a promise of a political opening. The MTI had played along with his game. They changed their name to Enahta, which means the Renaissance, to, to fit the criteria for the new political parties law. And they demonstrated their strength in those elections in 89, where, as I said, in Sousse they won 27% of the vote. Nationwide it was about 15%, but that was by far the largest opposition party. The regime response was repression. Thousands jailed, hundreds exiled, and many others socially excluded, which meant that they often couldn't work, especially if they worked in the public sector, they couldn't return to their jobs. It also meant they had to report daily or weekly to police stations or to the National Guard. And it's at this moment, for these two decades in the 90s and the 2000s, in the face of this repression, where the problem of the relationship between political ambitions and religious, social and cultural ambitions really comes to the fore. Nancy Hermio talks about 
the concept of political learning when a crisis provokes modifications of beliefs and tactics. That's what's happening here, but what I want to emphasise is that different elements in the movement are learning different lessons from their experience of repression in the 90s and the 2000s. And this reflects on how the movement is developing after the uprising in 2011. First of all, the leaders in exile. They're mostly in the UK, sometimes in France, uh, elsewhere in Europe. They admit that their political aspirations in the 1989 election had overwhelmed all their other activities and had brought them into confrontation with the regimes. It's quite self-reflective. They admit that they failed to build alliances and they understand that that left them isolated at the moment of the crackdown. Their proposition is national dialogue and what they call comprehensive national reconciliation. In other words, they want to start talking again with the regime. And this idea of reconciliation is what emerges again after 2011. It's a policy of pragmatism, of prioritising reconciliation with the secular political elite. It's political inclusion ahead of Islamization. That's where the priorities are. But what about inside the jails? So inside Tunisia's jails, you have around 10,000 Islamists who are held for significant periods of time. They're treated very brutally when they're first arrested, but then they find the space in their cells to debate and to talk with each other about what's happened to their movement, about what led them to this confrontation with the Ben Ali regime. They call this an evaluation, a takim, they call it. It's an informal, unwritten, and often very critical assessment of the movement's leadership. The prisoners are really reluctant, understandably, to think of reconciliation with the regime. This is the regime that's been torturing them and that's still pursuing their families outside jail. And they're highly critical of the leadership of the movement. I want to give you just a couple of examples to illustrate these different trajectories that I'm talking about. One long-term prisoner I spent a lot of time with, who I call Rashid, He's a local level organiser in a town near Sousse in the 1980s. He's also a member by then of the Consultative Council, which is the sort of internal parliament of the movement. He spent 11 years in jail. In fact, 11 years in 10 different jails because they were constantly moved around. And in his discussions with cellmates, he talked about how he argued that the movement was right to take part in the elections in 1989, but wrong to confront the regime. And he was angry that the leadership had pushed against the regime without leaving themselves space to retreat, without any alternative strategy. After jail, he was released in the early 2000s, he tried to become politically active again. He went to a meeting of another opposition political party, but there were police informers there and he was called into his local police station immediately afterwards and told he'd be punished if he did any more of this. After 2011, he rejoins the movement. He retains his senior position as a member of the Consultative Council, but he becomes really concerned about what the, what's happened to this original project in his movement. And he said to me, are we a political movement with an Islamic background, or are we fundamentally an Islamic movement that has a political dimension, or are we just a political movement with no religious dimension? I believe that we have a comprehensive project, he said, but how can we implement this? It needs much more reflection. I think that captures the sort of sense of confusion and frustration a lot of people were feeling at the time. The lesson they learned was that political overreach in the late 80s had really set their movement back by 20 years, but they couldn't understand how to recast that original comprehensive project from the 70s and 80s into the new context, the new political reality after 2011. Others learned different lessons. So some spent the years of repression in human rights groups or trying to work in opposition parties, and they often continued this civil society work after 2011. And most of these people chose not to rejoin the movement. In fact, the one person that I knew in Sousse at the beginning, the political prisoner I knew, took me quite a long time to figure this out, but actually he was no longer a member of the movement. He had been involved in human rights work and he'd chosen not to rejoin the movement after 2011. He was quite discreet about it. It took me about six months before he admitted that to me. So what's going on here? This is repression encouraging people to take a new interpretation of the project to embrace a discourse of human rights. What kind of people? People who are on the periphery of the movement. So they're structurally on the periphery in that they are, they're not senior leaders, they've not spent a long time in prison. They're also intellectually on the edges of the movement, so they tend to have friendships that cross political boundaries. They have friends in other political parties. And they tend to embrace this new vocabulary of democratic reforms, of human rights causes. So one Nahdawi I knew in Sousse had been an Islamist activist at the university in Sousse in the 80s. He'd been conscripted into the army as a punishment during the crackdown. And after he was released, he began to attend these sorts of human rights meetings, so Amnesty International, the Tunisian League for Human Rights. They all had 
groups in meeting in Seuss. He attended meetings of an opposition party, the PDP, the Progressive, Progressive Democratic Party, which has sort of opened its doors to Islamists. And he took part in a key hunger strike in Seuss in 2005 that was a cross-party a cross-party action, but he chose not to rejoin after 2011. He set up his own local organisation It was involved in cultural heritage. He said, I work more freely in an association than in a party. All the rules in a party limit your situation and you end up opposing or confronting other parties. That's political life, but we're not used to it and we need to learn how to accept others. I respect Anatta, and at heart I'm with them, but I'm not a member. I prefer to be able to speak freely with others. So this is a classic case of demobilisation from a social movement, right? Moving towards a much less political, less confrontational form of social act- activism. But the largest majority of people spent the years of the 90s and the 2000s avoiding all political or civil society activity altogether because this was a very heavy police state. The weight of repression was very tough. They learned, I think, that political ambitions had damaged the subculture that they used to live in, the Islamist subculture that they'd spent so long building, and they reimagined what it meant to be an Islamist when it was no longer possible to organise themselves as a group. And often they described it as a way of returning to the original project of morality and correct behaviour, to the extent that many of them said they no longer recognise enough as it is after 2011. So there's one activist I knew in Sousse who I call Shokri. He was a member of the movement in the 80s. He was imprisoned for a couple of years during the crackdown. And then in the mid-2000s, he sets up a small Quranic association in Hammam Sousse, actually where in the old city of the town that Ben Ali comes from, not very far from Ben Ali's house. It was possible to set up Quranic associations because Ben Ali's son-in-law had set one up and had set up an Islamic uh, radio station. There was a sort of protection from the regime as long as you were not talking about politics. So this association was doing Islamic studies for children. They were trying to recreate the culture of the 70s and 80s, this subculture, with an emphasis on ethical behaviour, comportment. And after 2011, the association grew really rapidly. It was now teaching hundreds of students and adults, children and adults. And Shokri said that he was trying to build a small society within the bigger society. He was trying to respond to the awakening of religiosity that he saw in Tunisia. And he felt that Inata had completely missed this. He said, we say as ordinary people that Inata is zero. It's not relevant to us in the way it was before. Inata is focusing more on the political issue than the religious issue, even though it's a religious movement. So these are the sorts of tensions that are suddenly re-emerging after 2011 when Inata is finally free to operate as it wishes. The point I'm making is that these movements are multivocal, right? There are all sorts of trends within them. And suddenly in 2011, the differences are exposed. But we're also seeing that there's a real malleability about these, these ideas about what the original project stood for. What it means to be Islamist is fluid. It's being reinvented on the experience of this period of rupture, and it changes over time. I think this is interesting because it suggests that the causal impact of religious belief is not fixed. It suggests that religious belief can't always be neatly captured in a rational actor framework or in an economic model of religious behaviour, because what matters is the meaning that the movement and the individuals within the movement give to their belonging to Inatta. What mattered was how they interpreted for themselves what it meant to be Islamist in these changing climates. So thinking about fragmentation within an Islamist movement, I think, gives us some evidence about how religious belief can structure political activism. But although the ideology of this project is malleable, it's flexible, it's adaptable, it's not endlessly so. And that's why some are leaving the movement altogether. That's why some no longer recognise themselves in the movement. I think that the primary fractures that we're seeing within the movement now are not about hardliners and moderates. They're not about a younger generation and veterans. They're not even about those who were exiled in Europe and those who were prisoners. The pattern that I see is between those who favoured politics and those who favoured preaching or other forms of social or cultural outreach. It's what one leader described as a problem of double belonging this long-standing ambiguity of acting like a political party while also operating as a religious movement invested in preaching and social outreach. So let's think about the period after 2011. How did the movement rebuild? It was the student activists of the 80s who now became the leaders of the movement at the local level and at the national level. But the demands of the transition meant it was very difficult to rebuild this community of belonging that they'd remembered from the 80s. They tried to set up religious study groups again. 
but many of their new supporters didn't understand what Anahta stood for. They either thought it was a clientelist machine like the old regime that would just give them jobs, or they thought it was a much more radical Islamic organization that would Islamize the state to a much greater degree than I think Anahta was ready to accept. So there were these programs of internal training or cultivation, trying to explain to new members what the movement meant. But there was also competition from Salafist groups, from jihadis. And there was a sense that the movement was distracted by the unexpected challenges of the transition. And the movement faced, I think, three internal debates. The one that has attracted most attention outside the country is this question of ideology. How much Islamization do they really stand for? So early on, Inata wasn't shy about hiding from its religious identity. In 2011, it talked about Islam as a supreme centrist reference for the movement. But in the years that followed, it really compromised on its Islamizing vision. It withdrew an early proposal to introduce Sharia as a fundamental source of legislation in the Constitution. It gave up a demand, it it conceded a demand that attacks on the sacred should be criminalized. They wanted to have an anti-blasphemy law, basically, and they were unable to, they were defeated, they were unable to achieve that. They also dropped a constitutional proposal to insist that Islam be the religion of state. And they tried to explain all these concessions in a whole series of national workshops over several years, but they felt they were running out of time. So one local bureau leader told me, the problem in Anahda is that we've let ourselves become too preoccupied with political work. But I don't think that's the key debate. The key debate is about strategy. This is the most difficult question they faced. How, th- how should they face the former political regime, the former political elite? How should they respond to questions and demands for transitional justice? And here, early on in 2011, they have a very hard line. They talk about wanting a final break with the old regime. They want to completely ban former senior officials from the old regime from running in elections. And then in 2013, Hanushi reverses his position. And he starts to adopt a policy of what he calls consensus, a tawafuk, he calls it. And he aligns himself with Nida Tunis, whose leader, Bejikhaid Sebsi, was a former interior minister under Bourguiba in the 60s. Nida Tunis is, a, at this stage, when they start aligning with each other, it's, it's still an opposition party, and it's primarily an anti-Islamist opposition party. It represents the political and business elite of the old regime. This is an enormous change in Inata's position. It's an enormous decision for Ganushi to make. And I think that there are a lot of ordinary members of the movement who really struggled with this. He really struggled to bring the movement with him. What evidence is there? In 2014, he only just managed to convince enough deputies from his party in the Assembly to defeat by just one single vote a draft article of the electoral law that would have excluded senior RCD figures from political life. That moment was a really a critical juncture. The vote had gone the other way. So in other words, if ex-regime people had been excluded from political life, then the Tunisian transition would not look like it does today. It would not be the model that we talk about. It would be more polarised. It would be more contentious. And at a local level in Sousse, there was a real unease about this, about this image of Renouchi and, and Sebsi together. So I took part with the... Uh, local Inata activists in October 2014 in their election campaign, I went door-to-door campaigning with them, and you could see that the local activists went completely off-message. The official message was consensus. They went completely off-message to talk about Inata as if it was defending a revolutionary cause, as if it was fighting against the return of the former regime. They reactivated the language that they'd last used in the 80s, where they talked about standing up for the oppressed. It was completely out of tune with the formal narrative of the movement. And I think it reflected real fears among local Inata activists who were angry about the revival of the political elite, angry about long delays in transitional justice, but also anxious about the possibility of a return to jail. They were, they were worried that the leftists might again ally themselves with with ex-regime people, just like they did in the the 1990s, and exclude the Islamists from the political game altogether. And this frustration grew after the 2014 elections, when Inata joined a coalition government with Nida Tunis. That one of the Natawis I knew resigned his position as head of a local bureau in protest. Hamadi Jabali, the first Inata prime minister, resigned very publicly from the movement. Abdelhamid Jalassi, a very senior member of the movement, back from his senior positions and he described this consensus agreement as a deal of the gullible that he's still a critic today and then thirdly there's the organizational question which is about politicizing the movement about specializing as a political party so in the elections in 2014 Inata lost they came second and the the way the leaders responded to this electoral defeat was not to 
to retreat from the political process to seek refuge in in the original social movement, which is what Islamists had always done under semi-authoritarian regimes. They did the opposite. They became more politicised. So there were months of debate and workshops, again, trying to explain this idea to the base of the movement, that what was happening was that what was previously a social and political movement driven by Islamist ideology was now reinventing itself as a political party that was socially conservative and pragmatic. And any preaching or social outreach was to happen independently, outside the party, as individuals or through charitable associations. This is a deep commitment to politicisation, by which I mean it's, I think, hard to reverse. It doesn't have any of the caution that you see in Islamist behaviour in semi-authoritarian systems where they tend to protect their movement. And perhaps it's easier for Anahda to do this because its, its social welfare is always underdeveloped compared to other Islamist movements in the region because they've lived through 20 years of very serious repression. And also there's a real debate that you don't hear very much about about who's leading the party and about what's got wrong, what's gone wrong with Vanushu. There's a real sense that he's led the movement for too long and that they need a new leader. One, one senior Islamist said to me, in fact, he was someone we met in January, Michael, he said, are we a movement with a president or a president with a movement? Suspected the next Congress they'll elect a new leader. So what's innovative about what's going on is that Inata is not dividing itself into a movement and a party, which is exactly what we've seen Islamists do in places like Morocco and Jordan and Kuwait. What they're doing is they're turning into a political party. It's a formal break with all religious, cultural and social activities, hence this peculiar phrase, functional specialisation. It's, it's modelled in some way on the Turkish AKP. The, they want to be a centre-right political party. They adopt, they believe in a free market economy. They talk about a limited role for the state. They're hoping for a wider vote share, but it's not just a vote-seeking strategy. So Hanushi argues that politicisation is appropriate because the real threats that the movement faced, which he defined as dictatorship and secularist extremism have now passed. But it's also about Inata trying to reimagine what it means to be Islamist and to compete within a democratic system for control over a civil state. So what does this case study of Inata tell us about how Islamist movements are adapting? And is this about an attempt to move beyond the Islamism of the past? So we have the idea of post-Islamism as a way of trying to conceptualise how these movements have changed. So you can think of this in a historical way, as does Olivier Roy. This is the argument that Islamism has exhausted its revolutionary zeal, it's failed to capture the state, it's fragmenting into nationalist conservative parties and private piety and morality-focused activism. Or you can think about it as a conceptual rethinking, which is how Asif Bayat describes it, as a project to transcend the Islamism of the past with a new project that emphasises religiosity and right. I'm not sure about either of those. I think the evidence in the case of Anatha is much more is much more prosaic. First thing is something that I think is obvious to all of us. It's not that there's been a failure of political Islam, it's there's been a diversification, right? A diversification within the movements, but also of all forms of Islamist activism, which is why we now see Salafis acting as political competitors of the Islamists. And second, it's not that religiosity and rights are now the most important thing. It's not that there's a that the pursuit of greater democratic accountability is the priority. Instead, it's the pursuit of consensus. It's about the strategic reconciliation with the former political elite, something they talked about even in the years of repression. So that's why you have Inata aligning itself with this with Nida Tunis, this anti-Islamist party. That alliance has completely broken down now, but now Inata is doing exactly the same thing by trying to ally themselves with the current Prime Minister, Yusuf Shahid, who's just set up his own political party. This is a strategic choice. Right? They discussed being in, in opposition, being a critical opposition, pushing for reforms, pushing for democratic accountability, but they chose instead to pursue consensus, to protect their position at the political centre. And this has serious effects. It means that Inata is taking a conservative approach to the demands of the uprising. It's prioritising inclusion in the consensus, and that produces a risk-averse agenda. Their reluctance to endorse the far-reaching social and economic change that was proposed in 2011. What's the evidence? We have Inata supporting the return of former old regime ministers into cabinet in key positions. You see the movement voting in the parliament in favour of a law presented by the president that would give an amnesty to people guilty of to public officials guilty of corruption under the old regime. So it's true, I think, that consensus politics avoids polarisation, but it does introduce a conservative bias. 
there's a real reluctance to make redistributive economic reforms. And that's created an impression of stability about the transition, which has obscured what I think is actually a highly contested transition. The more entrenched the consensus, the more the dissent is growing outside formal politics. So there are now hundreds of protests a month in Tunisia. There's really widespread disillusionment with consensus as a device for political legitimation. And third, the movement has really diluted its religious references, and now it talks about effectively what is a technocratic politics. So they really downplay their religious identity. It's a form of secularisation. But it's the, what's interesting, I think, is the way they frame their new policies. It's about the election campaign in 2014. They talked about economic recovery, improved security. But look at what they did at the local level. This is the election leaflet for Seuss for the election of October 2014, parliamentary election. So the, the candidates are on the left. It's a, it's a proportional representation done through lists. But on the right, it says, so the Nachta movement in the service of Seuss. And it lists a series of manifesto proposals. They want to rehabilitate the tourist sector. They want to revitalise industrial zones. They want to address public transport shorts. They want to stop traffic jams. They want to turn the city's port into a tourist attraction. They want to modernise fishing, improve services to farmers, and so on. It's all about avoiding any issues that are ideologically inflected. But it's also an embrace of neoliberalism here. It's about a light-touch, non-interventionist state. It's about a continued reliance on international financial institutions and structural adjustment policies. Senior advisers in the movement talk about the need to reduce citizen dependency on the state. They're arguing against state control of the economy. And they present government policies not as a choice between rival political programs, but as expert answers to technical challenges. So Hanushi now says that the goal of the movement is to create solutions to the day-to-day problems that Tunisians face rather than to preach about the hereafter. Where there once had been a transcendent, comprehensive Islam, now the new ideology is a worldly, problem-solving technocracy. Why is it doing this? Partly a vote-seeking move, but it's not just that. Inata has committed to specialisation as a political party and to consensus because it sees benefits for itself, legitimacy, security, avoiding marginalisation. Many speak privately of their real concern about a return to repression. Participating in the process gives you a chance to gain more political resources to negotiate with your opponents to avoid isolation, to be seen to be acting professionally, to show your commitment to the democratic process, especially given the context in the region, given the repression of the Brotherhood in Egypt, given the growing influence of the United Arab Emirates. If we stand back a little bit and think, what are the implications about the way we can think about Islamist movements more broadly, based on what we've heard about Inata? First, I mean, it's my sense that thinking about offstage activism does have explanatory power Activism that takes place at a local level can help us understand internal dynamics within Islamist movements. It encourages us to look beyond the formal face of the movement, to historicise the tensions and the ambiguities that lie within. It encourages us to think about meaning-making within the movement and to think about competition between meanings within organisations. The movement leaders, of course, are important for the strategic choices that they make, but the way those choices are negotiated by the rest of the movement is just as important. This case is also useful because we've done a lot of work thinking about Islamist strategies in the context of authoritarian or semi-authoritarian systems. But here is evidence of how Islamists might behave during a transition. And it looks to me like the presumed Islamist political advantage is actually not as great as it once seemed. Islamists no longer look like exceptional political actors. They're subject to the contingencies of competition, to the shifting loyalties of an electorate, just like any other political party. And we know that parties that win founding elections in transitions rarely win the second vote. That's what happened with Inafta in 2014. The Islamists are just as likely as any other party to fail to meet heightened expectations or to fall short in fulfilling those campaign promises you saw. The, the, the interesting thing is that the, the pragmatic compromises that they're making, these self-limiting compromises, are quite disproportionate to the political influence they enjoy. So they, they were the biggest party in Parliament between 2011 and 2014, and that's when they made the biggest compromises, much bigger compromises than any other party. And it's not just the Islamists that experience the problems of fragmentation and a loss of intellectual vision. All the political parties are facing this. Nida Tunis, their great opponent, has completely collapsed. It's fallen in upon itself. It's very divided. And some of the big opposition parties of the past have been totally wiped out. So let's not rush to consider Islamists as somehow exceptional.
And then thirdly, just what is the significance of the Tunisian case more broadly? And I think it might be tempting to think of the experience of Inatar as particular, as lying outside universalist theories of Islamism. And the Islamists were once described as Islamists unlike any others, because they were so different to the Brotherhood in Egypt. But I think that falls into this broader problem of somehow considering that Tunisia itself is an anomaly, that it doesn't quite fit the rest of the region. In fact, I think the Islamists in Tunisia have met many of the same challenges that Islamists elsewhere are facing. This debate between political work and preaching is a central debate within lots of Islamist movements. This balancing of party and movement is not unique to Anahta. So normally it's political opportunities and institutional context that seem to explain how and when Islamists form parties. I'm thinking about Islamists in Kuwait in 1991, in Jordan in 92, in Morocco in 96. And in each case, the party grows more important than the movement. When you set up a party, it tends to overwhelm the movement. And that's almost certainly what's going to happen with Anatta too. The Brotherhood in Egypt is a completely different picture, right? So the Brotherhood, the weight of influence shifted to the Freedom and Justice Party immediately after the uprising, and then it shifted back to the Brotherhood itself at the moment of extreme repression. But what's interesting is that some... Muslim brothers in Egypt are now suggesting that the solution to this enormous crisis they're facing is to disengage entirely from formal political work and to go back to religious social activism. So in other words, to put dawah before politics, completely the opposite of what the Tunisians are doing. I do think it's striking how often Islamists are acting pragmatically, how often they're advocating technocratic programs, not ideological programs. And it's pretty clear that this kind of Islamism is much less ambitious than it used to be. It's very a very long way from the leftist-inspired ideas of the early 80s, where Islamists like Inatta aligned themselves with the oppressed, where they talked about economic redistribution. You don't hear that vocabulary anymore. But it's also much more prosaic what's happening than the idea of post-Islamism as some kind of conceptual reimagining of the project, as if it's somehow about rights more than duties now. I think, I think that the story is a bit more prosaic. The characteristics of the new Inatta are pragmatism, a retreat to consensus, technocratic politics. On the key issues of minority rights, gender rights, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, lifestyle, this vision is still very ambiguous and I think largely untested. So Anatta's adaptation is not divesting it entirely of an Islamic reference. Instead, it means that that reference is asserted as a broad cultural Islamic identity that moulds itself to consensus politics and to a neoliberal technocracy. And I think this is one indication of the rather ambiguous and uncertain shape of Islamism that is to come. Thank you very much.